Hello, listeners. This is Gerard Robinson. What a wonderful day to have you with us to talk about education on the learning curve. And this just isn't any week, at least in Virginia, where I live. This is election week. In fact, by the time this posts and you're listening, we will know who is the new governor of Virginia. Or then again, because the polls say it's so close, maybe we won't. But either way, this is an important bellwether state for what education is all about. And my co-host, Karen, knows this all too well. How are you? I'm well, Gerard. I have to say, okay, I'm going to admit, I had not been paying attention to Virginia until about a week ago. <laughs> I was all like, oh, who's going to be elected mayor of Boston? And boy. <laughs> Equally important. No, it is a historic race here in Boston, too, because no matter how it shakes out, we're going to have our first female mayor ever because it's such a progressive city. We are. As Bostonians really like to think of themselves as progressive. And those of us who didn't grow up here look askance and say, really, how's that going for you? But we'll have our first female mayor, no matter how it shakes out. And it's looking like our first female mayor of color as well. So a lot of cool stuff going on. But man, Virginia, and talk about schools being right at the center of that battle and boy, oh boy, watch what you say about parents, huh? Watch what you say about parents and schools and whether or not they should be making decisions. Because I think that parents on both sides of the aisle, no matter what their politics, political persuasion, what they think about the current moment and the controversies of a critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera, parents do want to have a say in what kids are learning in school, both ways, right? So I don't know, Gerard, what are you reading in the tea leaves or what are you thinking about all this? Well, one of the uh, tea leaves I'm reading right now is from Reason Magazine, and in fact, it's my article for this week. And it's really about McCullough, who is a Democratic nominee, former governor, and Glenn Youngkin, the Republican nominee. And education is really shot to the top, at least the top three issues for Virginians as it relates to who's going to be the next governor. So as many of you know, I live in Virginia. I had a chance to work in state-level leadership. And every four years, in fact, we're the only state with a one-term governor by law, we're going to have a new governor. And what's so interesting about this is the fact that, A, usually how Virginia votes, you're going to see an outcome in the White House. So for the most part, minus what happened when McCulloch was in office, if we had a Republican in the White House, then you found a shift either in the executive branch or in the legislature for the opposite color. So we'll see if that makes a difference this time. Virginia, for the last three presidential cycles, is the only Southern state to have gone blue all the way through. And Trump, Virginia, the last go round. But what's unique about this is there was a debate between both of the candidates and, of course, the question of parents and parent rights had come up. And McCulloch said he didn't believe that parents should have a say-so in their kids' education. And the Republican, Youngkin, said something a little different. Now, I listened to it, and I sparsed out what he said. On one point, what he was saying is parents shouldn't tell schools how to run schools, how to pick a curriculum. And <laughs> someone who had to sit in that seat, I think he's absolutely right. When mm -hmm. we send our children to our public school system, even private schools, but this is really about public schools, when we send them, we have to entrust them to the professionals who are in place to do that job. And so I saw his point. At the same time, I know that when he was in governor, he vetoed a bill to expand the charter school law in the state. He also vetoed a education savings account. So I know he's not a fan of both public and private school choice. And so when he makes those comments, it even makes Democrats who may not be fans of charters, who may not be fans of ESA, say, wait a minute, 
But you're talking about the majority of our kids who are in public schools. I should have something to say about their education through the lens of parental rights. So that all of a sudden galvanized a number of parents, and not just Democrats, not just sub suburban white moms who some say that he's speaking against. It's really a lot of parents. The number of phone calls that I've received in the last six months, even before that debate, on parents who, because their kids were at home, whose kids were out of school, but the Catholic school, the charter school, and we only have seven in the state. Really, we have, you'll see that it says we have eight, but there was actually a combination of the yeah, two. So no, that's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a point to note. But anyway, parents were interested in options. But when this comment was made, a lot of folks who are Democrat, who are progressive, who are my friends, were like, wait a minute, something's going on here. So the issues moved to the top. So in Reason magazine, they talk about this issue. But they also talk about the National School Board, as you know, and ask the federal government to actually investigate and to intervene with angry parents who are showing up at board meetings. And for many people, they thought this was just a blanket yes across the board. Well, guess what? The move frustrated a number of board of director members across the country, including Virginia. Some actually decided to disaffiliate with the national organization, and there were a number of protests. There were some in Loudoun County that had to do with something more personal, we save that for a different conversation. But the article goes on to basically say that the polls are showing that that issue and education in general is closing the gap between Glenn Youngkin and Terry. And as a former governor, it shouldn't be this close. Now, I will say in the last gubernatorial race four years ago, Ed Gillespie, former leader of the RNC, he actually was within 17,700 votes of winning. So it was a close race. But for someone who was a former governor running against someone who hasn't run before, this is going to be pretty close. Naturally, critical race theory is a part of the debate. I've got my own questions and concerns about how the right is handling that. And there's also the issue of homeschooling. Virginia is a pretty strong homeschool state. When I was teaching at the college level, I had a couple of students who were actually homeschooled. Private school market in Virginia, pretty strong as well. But you know what? We also have one of the best public school systems in the country. We have a pretty strong pipeline to our high school graduates who are going to four-year and private schools in the Commonwealth who are also going to the military. Some are starting businesses, and of course, some who are leaving the state. So this is going to be a really interesting outcome. Now, if McCulloch wins. Some will say this is a great win for Biden because it's going to show that he's going to do pretty well next year in the midterm elections. If he loses, some will say, ah, this is a Republican swell. This is a Republican yeah. return. Well, here's how I read the tea leaves to go to your original question. No matter who wins, there are going to be three outcomes. Number one, families independent of party and independent of race are pretty clear that schools matter to their families. Number two, teachers, unfortunately, and I think often unfairly during the uh, pandemic, have been dumped upon as not doing their jobs. Parents and teachers have found unique ways of saying, listen, we're not enemies. We're partners. What can we do together to make things work? And so I think there's going to be a pretty good PTA, not organization, but PTA movement moving out of this. Third, no matter what you think about critical race theory, we have to have conversations about race, even if it means being critical about Amen. our past. But if we're being critical about our past, it's also an opportunity for us to be glorious about our future. And so while this is focused on education, I think it's a bigger issue. And I think no matter who wins, it's not going to be a mandate. 
but it's going to be an opportunity for us to exhale and show the country how we can leave a divided gubernatorial election, come together as one commonwealth, and bring a common sense approach to teaching and learning. Yeah, amen to that, Gerard. And I have to say, to the point around the light being shown on education in this race, two things. So critical race theory is the hot button issue. It's the painful issue. It's the sexy issue, depending on how you look at it, right? But I think that, although, yes, that is certainly drawing some parents to school board meetings, forcing some people probably on both sides to behave really uncivilly and in a way not becoming to adults, in my opinion, who are supposed to be modeling behaviors for children. But yeah, of course we do. We've got a lot of things to address probably in our classrooms about race. And you can do that any number of ways, I would imagine. But I also think, and this is probably part of what you were getting at, this isn't the only thing that's bringing parents out. Can we not forget that parents saw a lot during COVID in addition to what was or was not being discussed about our history in their classrooms, but they saw a lot of stuff that they didn't like. And I couldn't agree with you more as a former teacher that you can't teach and schools can't be run if you have to cater to every single parent's whim. On the other hand, though, the idea that parents are now probably more than ever exercising their voice in many cases with concern, right? We've been locked up in our homes for 18 months or whatever the case is, and now you're going back and, well, I've got some things to say. And it's an unfortunate time because schools are strapped, teachers are quitting, all of these different dynamics at play. But I hesitate to say everything's about this one particular issue when it comes to schools, just like I hesitate to say, oh, Virginia's going to determine, you know, how the midterms go one way or another. That seems like a lot of pressure. And if the past 18 months have shown us anything, a lot can happen between now and then, right? But it's a really interesting one to watch. And I also just think for folks on both sides of the aisle, like, watch your language, watch your mouth before you speak, people, because it's just like one little thing. And then boy, oh boy, you got yourself a much closer race than you thought you would. So I'll be watching tonight. I'll also be watching the Boston mural race and my city council race here because local politics matters too. And I think it's all really interesting stuff. My local school board race, I should say. And to, to all the school board members out there, God bless you. Keep doing the work. It's good work. And now more than ever, it's really, really hard work. All right, Jared, there's no way to do easy pivot to my story of the week, but there is a parent connection here that I think is really worth highlighting. So I'm bringing to us, bringing to our listeners, an article from the Washington Post by John Marcus. And the title is, Will That College Degree Pay Off? And I have to tell you, I love the opening to this article because it talks about how starting salaries for various professions, and for example, I think it's like, I've, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. I've been, I read it earlier today, but that starting salary for folks who graduate, for example, with like an English lit degree or an anthropology degree is like around $18,000 a year, even though the cost of that degree might be $130,000 a year. Now, Gerard, as I know I've shared with you before, I have an undergraduate degree in English literature, which when I announced that that was going to be my major, my poor father I think he had to take to his bed for about a week after I told him that. He had dreams of medicine or law or finance, something like that, not to happen. And then when I came back a couple years later and said, you know, Dad, I need a graduate degree in anthropology. That sounds like a really good idea. (laughs) He just looked at me and said, you are a lost cause. And although I pursued my passion and I followed my dreams and that doctorate in education would turn out to be the most lucrative 
career path I pursued, and I say that very tongue-in-cheek, turns out, according to the data and according to this report, my dear old dad might have had reason to have a little bit of agina when I told him what I was going to be majoring in in college and what I was going to pursue for graduate study. And that's because we do have data in this question of if people are taking on so much college debt and what's the return on investment. So I'm just going to point out a couple of statistics quoted in this article. The first one comes from a study that finds that about 16% of the college programs that they studied, so that's a portion of the programs that are available, but the data were available for these. So absolutely no financial return on investment because it takes people so long to earn back what they took out in student loan debt and put into their college degree. So if you're talking about $130,000 over time, like over the course of your education, and you start off with a starting salary of like fifteen dollars to $18,000, it takes you so long to earn it back that they say there's actually no ROI. Another study found that more than a quarter of programs will actually leave students less financially well off than they would have been had they pursued like a career and just foregone college altogether. And, you know, this is just it goes on to have this really interesting conversation about how institutions of higher education have avoided this kind of outcomes based accountability like the plague, how they've sort of said, I think there's a great quote in here from a scholar at AEI who says they think that what they do is like unicorns and pixie dust and it's too magical to wrap our arms around. And the fact of the matter is that the Obama administration had actually pushed institutions of higher education to show that people were actually getting some bang for their buck and they avoided doing so under Obama and then Trump repealed the repealed the law that was forcing them to do that. So I think this is really interesting stuff and here's the connection to parents, Gerard, wait for it. I think that one of the things we need to be thinking deeply about and here I'm going to give a shout out to some of my wonderful colleagues at Excel and Ed who have produced a series of reports called Pathways Matter. And in one of them, they spend a long time with parents. And one of the questions they ask is, how much information do you as a student and do you as the parent of a student have about what different paths, whether you're choosing college or whether you're choosing some sort of career path, certification, technical education, how much information do you have about how soon you can get a job, what kind of job you are likely to get, how much money you're likely to make over the course of your career. And by and large, the answer that people give is like, I have no information or I have such limited and confusing information that I don't know what to do with it. And I think that this is an area of so many parents, my parents for sure, are just convinced that college has to be the way. And it might be the way, or it might be the way for reasons other than money. But so few families sit down and say, what is it that's going to be personally satisfying to me? What career path? And what career path is going to be financially rewarding enough that I'm not going to be in debt with college loans until I'm past retirement age, or I'll never be able to pay off that debt, and it's just going to add to the federal deficit. So this, to me, is an article that spurred a lot of questions around what we're doing in high school and maybe even before to talk not only to students, but to parents about different career options, as well as holding institutions of higher education accountable for showing us, is there proof in the pudding? If I want to pursue a degree in anthropology, I should have known going in that the likelihood of me getting a job where I could actually support myself in a city like Boston is pretty darn low. So fascinating stuff. Highly recommend this read to anybody who's interested. And yeah, that's my story of the week, Gerard. 
My undergraduate degree is in philosophy, but I double majored in philosophy and anthropology. So you can See, imagine, so cool. you can imagine the number of dates that I lost when I left the School of Business, <laughs> where there was potential for me, <laughs> and went to philosophy and anthropology. They're like, oh yeah, so you want to pick yeah. rocks and yeah. look at the stare at your navel. Yeah, huh. I am with you in terms of talking to parents and students. One of our shows, I guess a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated the, was it Economic Week? And the important fact was the first time that we had a- Oh, I guess was, Economic Education, yeah. Yes. Yeah, Financial Literacy Week, I think it was. That was it. And it's the first time that the National Council, which supports economics and financial literacy said, listen, people need to understand this. I guess, even for me using my own story, I decided to major in something I liked. I didn't care if it was linked to money. Now, partly I also had worked for several years before I earned my BA degree from Howard University. So I knew what it took to get a job, but I wanted to major in something that made me think. Now it's not, uh, I mean, it's been a great return on investment for me, but yeah, I think we need to do that. The one danger with it is then you start moving away from, in fact, when Marco Rubio was running for president, he said, do we need more students majoring in Roman philosophy versus STEM? And I even worked for one governor who said in a meeting, do we need anyone else majoring in philosophy? And yet I'm a secretary of education with a degree in philosophy. No, so, you might though. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we should talk about it, but I'm much more of a utilitarian. I want people to major in what they like. And I think the rest of it will take care of itself, even with well, the debt. true. And in all honesty, the value of strong undergraduate liberal arts education in a discipline like philosophy or English language arts gives you a foundation, I think colleges would argue this, and I would agree, gives you a foundation to do many, many different things and to learn how to think and to write and all of the things that we know employers do value. But I think that the point that I want to drive home from this article is simply like people need to know their options and also understand yep. the various forms of return on investment. Because if you and I can say, anthropology was good for the soul, and it, it was, and it is, right? And it mm -hmm. was that I so much. Now, at the expense of my University of Chicago, which is not a cheap university, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. master's in social science degree, I don't know. Will I ask myself when I'm still paying those student loans 15 years from now, Gerard? Who knows? Maybe let's revisit this conversation then. We'll still be quite young, I'm sure. And one um, last point. There's a class yeah. dynamic in this as well, because even though we'll tell people not to major in philosophy or anthropology, think how many people we talk out of going into a trade that somehow going to a trade or earning a certificate or a licensure, ooh, you should go to a four-year program. Right. Electricians, plumbers, master masons make a lot more than teachers. They don't spend as much time in school and get out quicker. But for some reason, and I think I know why, it's just a waste class and ethnicity point with a long history in vocational race and politics, we talk too many students out of going to four-year but we also talked them out of going to trade schools, but we'll save that for another call. And then what's left, right? Yep. All right. Well, we've got a really interesting guest today, Gerard. We're going to be speaking with Pastor Robert Soto. He is a Lipin Apache religious leader, and he's going to talk to us about many, many different things, including how he has gone to court to successfully uphold his Native American cultural heritage and religious liberties, a topic we really enjoy hearing about here on The Learning Curve. So we'll be back in just a moment.
Learning Curve listeners, we're very pleased to have with us Pastor Robert Soto. He is an award-winning feather dancer and Lipan Apache religious leader who was threatened with criminal fines and imprisonment for using eagle feathers in his religious worship. He fought in court for over a decade to defend his rights to practice his faith in Christ as American Indian under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Soto presently is vice chairman of the Lipan tribe of Texas, a tribe consisting of 4,500 members. He is the founder of Son of Tree Native Path, which has performed and danced in 20 countries and 46 states. Soto is also the pastor of McClellan Grace Brethren Church and the Native American New Life Center in McAllen, Texas, My Rock Native Fellowship in Brownsville, Texas, and Chief of Chiefs Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. In past years, Robert has had the privilege of working with the Seminoles of Florida and the Pueblos and Navajos of New Mexico, along with 27 other tribal groups in the United States, Canada, Mexico, and South America. Pastor Soto holds a BA in Biblical Education from Florida Bible College, a Master of Divinity and a Master of Arts in Christian School Administration from Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana, and a Doctor of Arts in Theology and Biblical Studies from South Texas School of Theology. He and his wife, Iris Soto, have been married for 46 years, that's amazing, and have three children, one adopted, and eight grandchildren. Pastor Robert Soto, welcome to The Learning Curve. Glad to be here. Very happy to have you, sir. As the country is celebrating Native American Heritage Month, could you begin by briefly telling our listeners about the Lipan Apache tribe and your personal story as a religious leader? Well, the Lipan Apache tribe was it's been around forever, I guess, like every other tribe. But we're one of the few tribes in the United States that never signed a peace treaty with the United States. And so we kind of take pride on that because most of the tribes, to be able to survive, had to submit to the what I call the tyranny of, the, of all these regulations and laws and restrictions that came along in the reservation life. The Lipan Apaches, uh, we learned to assimilate. We became some, some of us became ranchers and farmers. But we learned to assimilate into a, a non-native community, but at the same time, never forgetting who we were and, and where we came from. So a lot of us had the privilege, like my family, to be brought up and observing these ceremonies and the every year, cultural events every year that happened that brought us close together as a community, but more important, brought to light the fact of who we were and where we came from. And so the Lipan Apache tribes uh, it's, uh, today consists of about 4,500 members. About half of them are still here in the homeland, South Texas, but most of them are scattered into areas like California and Washington, Oregon, and Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, just around Oklahoma, New Mexico, just kind of scattered around, which was our nature because we couldn't spend a lot of time in one place because there were so many things that were coming against us. There was laws by the United States government that were created to basically annihilate a nation of people, laws by the country of Mexico, which gave a bounty on the hair of our people, I think at that time was 100 pesos for a man scalp and 75 for a woman and 25 for a child. And so we became just like any other animal hunted down for a little bit of money. And so because of that, it forced us to basically go underground as a nation where we practice our language, we practice our religious ceremonies and and practice our culture in in hiding. I've heard stories from some of our elders, how they used to go into the woods, into the desert, away from people where they could practice some of these ceremonies. So uh, for fear that if they were caught, they would be into prison, shipped to some reservation somewhere in the United States. But at the most, the fear, fear it was, you know, shot, killed and scalped and 
become part of the economy of the state and the economy of the country. So we have a big history as far as the Lipan Apache tribe is concerned. And because we didn't sign that peace treaty back in the 1870s, because we didn't sign that peace treaty, I think it was in, in the 18, 1878, around there. Today, we basically have nothing. We have to fight for all our rights. And what about your own story of becoming a religious leader? Can you tell us a little bit about your personal calling, your personal story? Well, personal stories basically started because most of our Apache tribes have what we call holy people or, or people that were set apart or designated to encourage us spiritually to be there to holy hands and when people died or just be there for a word of encouragement and for prayer, funerals, um, celebrations. And I just happened to be brought up in a family where our holy person was my grandmother. So I was brought up seeing her the way she was and the way she acted and the way she responded to crisis and always being there for the people. So I fell into that role that as I started to mature and grow up, as a, that, that the more I observed her, the more she felt that maybe I was the person that was going to take over her role in our tribal community here in South Texas. And so little by little, that, that, that started being instilled into my heart and my brain, that I had a calling in life. And that actually, you know, it, it even started way before when I was a little boy, about a year and a half old, I had this vision. We call them visions. Maybe back then I called it a nightmare, because it's a, <laughs> but at the, at the very end of this nightmare, this, the whole world was being destroyed by fire. And I was on top of this big giant cube-like structure. They had a walkway on the very top, and I was looking to the exterior of this cube-like structure. And that's where I saw people suffering in agony. And and then I looked inside, in the inside, and there was a there was people dancing and just having a fun time. And then I heard a voice and said to go down to the center. It says, you don't belong to the outside. You belong to the inside because you're special to me. That vision came earlier than when I was a year and a half old. And all my life, I've always felt that that was called to do something more in life than just function and have a normal job. Somebody asked me uh, a couple of days ago what I did for a living. I says, well, I've been a pastor now for 46 years. That's all I ever known. Plus, before that, I was being mentored to be a, a spiritual leader in our community by my grandmother. So when I became a Christian in July the 26th of 1973, I thought maybe my grandmother might be disappointed because I was the first Christian in our tribal community down here. But she embraced the role because she saw that as a Christian, I took the role more serious, that I was the person holding people's hands, and I was the person doing the funerals, and I was the person being there at their weddings and doing their weddings and celebrations and blessings and all that kind of stuff. So your grandmother surprised you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah. Just a few moments ago, you were explaining the very long history of your people facing extermination, quite frankly, and as other all other Native Americans and having to try and preserve your cultural heritage sort of underground. And I think that many of our listeners would think of this as some sort of history long ago, which is in fact not the case because it was as recently as 2006 that an undercover federal agent raided your tribe's traditional religious ceremony, seized sacred eagle feathers, and threatened you with fines and imprisonment for using these feathers in your worship. So right. you, with the support of the Beckett Fund, you fought in federal court for over 10 years to defend your rights under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Tell us about that. I mean, not only the precipitating incident, the raid itself, but a decades-long battle to preserve this part of your faith, your heritage. I was just talking to somebody this morning. I'm helping now a friend, back then I, I didn't even know he existed, from Mexico who's sort of here illegally and 
but it's a member of our tribe because we do have some members of our tribe, about 200, maybe 300 members of Mexico. A lot of people forget that there was no borders at one time, and there was no Texas, and there was no Mexico. There was just our land. There was a river. We call ourselves the Conitzahi people. The Conitzahi the, means co means water. Itza means big, and he means belonging to. So we're the people belonging to the big water, which today is the Rio Grande River. Uh, that separates uh, Texas from Mexico, the United States from Mexico. And so a lot of people don't don't realize just uh, the whole historical significance of the things that are going on. And, and going back to that peace treaty that we didn't sign back in the 18, 1878, I believe, around that time, we have no right today because at the end of the day, and we've known this all our lives, at the end of the day, it's the government who decides who is and who's not a native. At the end of the day, it's the, it's the government who decides who can who cannot worship as a native. And, and if you don't belong to a tribe acknowledged by the federal government, then in reality, you, you have very few religious rights when it comes down to our, our indigenous culture and the practices that we like to practice. So a lot of our religious services or religious ceremonies, like I said earlier, went underground because there was a bounty in our hair and there was, you know, our, our lives were in danger just by revealing the fact that we were left on Apaches and that uh, even our language started to die out recently. We started to restore it again. But just the, the whole cultural experience as the native was, but we still kept it. Some of us kept it really strong. So when this government, when the United States government sent the agents, and we say agents, we only saw one, but there was two other ones that were acting as tourists and had cameras. And they were going around asking people, what, you know, oh, that's a pretty looking headpiece. What's in it? What kind of feathers are those? The right questions. And they were documenting wow. all these all these interviews and taking pictures of all this. And we're just taking pictures with people we thought were tourists, you know. They weren't wearing any uniforms with badges and stuff like that. But we always known that that was that possibility. Uh, one of the reasons I think that I reacted so well to them coming to our this gathering is that I've been practicing since I was a kid. Since I was a kid, mm -hmm. I was practicing what would I do and what would I say if I ever was confronted by the agents of the United States government and were and questioned my spirituality. The other thing that people don't understand, and, and, and then that is very difficult, living in a nation where, we, we, where everything is separated between church and state, in our native community, in a, a, the old traditional ways, there is no separation of church and state, because that which is secular meets in the middle of where, with the sacred, and what secular becomes sacred, and what sacred becomes secular, because it's, it all brings us our community together. And that's one thing that they don't understand about the powwow. The power, if you're a traditional person, and that we always we've been taught that way since I was a little boy, that the power is a sacred ceremony because there's a circle there, and there and and because the, there's prayers that go out there, there's ceremonies that go out there, blessings that go out there, and the United States government can't understand that because when you guys go to a dance, you don't go there to worship God, you go there to dance. And they see the same thing with us in our native community. Well, they're getting together at a powwow to dance. How can that be sacred? Well, it's sacred because of everything that goes in within that circle. There's things you do and things you don't. You know, in the native community, we're told when an elder rebukes us, he goes, man, I got a good cussing out by my elder tonight because I blew it in the circle. It's like acting bad in church. You, you, you hear it when you get home, you're going to get it from your parents because you weren't sitting still. And that's the way it sort of is. With, we, we teach our kids that way. We, we teach our kids that that circle is sacred. And the government can't understand that. For us, it was just an, I could go on forever, you know, with this. But it was, I was just totally shocked when the agent finally confronted. He actually started with my brother-in-law outside the circle because they couldn't come into the circle. They couldn't come to the building with the circle uh, unless they had just caused that a crime had been committed. 
And of course, they went after my brother-in-law, who was wearing 46 of my eagle feathers. I had loaned them to him, and they went after him. And when I confronted the agent, then he went after me. And in, in many ways, I went against his desires. He kept saying, I'm the agent of the federal government and the fishing game. And I went to eagle feathers. And, I, and, and he didn't prove, he didn't show me his badge. So I, I said, how do you know he's telling me the truth? And I had to ask him three times for his badge. But when he finally asked for his badge, I, he said, I'll give you your eagle feathers. I go, no, you can't have my eagle feathers. He says, why not? He goes, well, it's, a, it's an American Indian. He goes, I have this right to these feathers. I did my best to keep him from going into the circle. And this is where I was totally surprised. But, uh, they, he said the reason he could go into our circle is because we violated two laws, two federal laws. Now, whether those, book, those laws are in the books or not, we don't know. But they, I, I assume they are because it also came out in the early part of my court case, the federal court case. And the first law we had violated was that we advertised our gathering in the newspaper. And very soon discovered that, that Native, not just people that belong to a tribe, not acknowledged by the federal government, but any tribal community advertises their gatherings, where the, you know, especially the religious gatherings. They said, once you advertise it, teach it to be sacred, it becomes a public event, giving the government every right to come and do whatever they want to do. And that was one of the laws we violated. The second law we violated was the exchange of money. They asked me questions in court. But even as the agent was trying to get in, he says, he asked me questions like, are you holding a raffle? Are vendors selling their goods around the circle? I goes, are you having a cakewalk? Are you having a 50-50? And then finally at the end, he goes, at any time, it says, did you honor a veteran by putting a dollar in his feet in the circle? And when I said yes, it goes, the moment that dollar touched the circle, it ceased to be sacred. But that's what we honor people. We honor people. We bring them to the middle of the circle. It's a religious ceremony. And we honor them by giving them gifts. And one way to give them gifts is everybody puts money on his feet. You know, that's the way we honor them. And so I mean, those are ludicrous charges because I've been a pastor for somebody asked me how long, you know, what, what I do for a living. I said, well, all I've ever done is as a pastor since, my, since I was 21. That's all I've ever done is be a pastor. I've been pastoring for 46 years. And that's all I know what to do. And we've advertised before the newspaper our Christmas gatherings and our Easter Sunday gatherings. And this, does that violate our sacredness because we advertise and we have the offering every Sunday? Does that violate our sacredness because money falls into the our sacred ceremony, our gatherings, our church gatherings? And so I saw that there was laws that were okay for the non-Indian community, but not okay for the Native community. Sure. You know. This is the kind of information we want to share with our listeners. I'm learning a lot. I knew something about your story from the past, but to actually have you here is important. Let me do one pivot before I pivot back to this story. Most of us are unaware that when you think of states like Connecticut or Alaska, Oregon, Alabama, over half the U.S. states have Native American names. And then you look at cities like Chicago or Milwaukee, where I used to live, Cheyenne, Seattle, Miami, are among the cities with Indian identities. We have numerous rivers, Missouri River, Mississippi River, Arkansas, Ohio, and it goes on. In your view, how well does American education teach our children about many elements of Native American history and culture that are so deeply embedded in our culture that, frankly, we take for granted? What can we do to better highlight it? I think education is uh, important. The problem we have in our Native community, and I've heard you refer to saying that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Yep. And it seems like every ethnic group, the, the African-Americans, the Mexican-Americans, the Asian-Americans, and all these people have the squeaky wheel and they scream the loudest. I told people we're the only nation where 
when we get persecuted, we treat it in, in, in sincere quietness and humility, and we take it to prayer and decide what to do. And so I, I don't understand what it is to be an American Indian in the 21st century. And I think education would really help. And that's something that we've been trying to do here in, in Texas, is better educate that even though Texas doesn't recognize any American Indian tribe, except there's three, but those are recognized by the federal government, the Aloma Cachara, the Tiguas, and the Kikapus, who are daughter reservations from other reservations that were outside boundaries of Texas, but they're not Texans. They weren't brought up in Texas. They didn't dwell on this land. They just came later and call them winter Texans, the people that came in later. But the tribes that are from the the state itself, the Lipan Apaches, the Comanches, the Kiowas, the Kiowa Apaches, the Kukuris, the Kumakuras, the Concord, the Tonquas, and and the list goes on and on. It goes. Those nations are still here today in this and in this in this in this area, but nobody's aware of us. We do presentations in schools from time to time, and we were doing this presentation with fifth graders. There were six fifth grader classes. There were about 150 kids were there. And the teacher said, well, you know, this isn't new for the kids because we don't have any natives except for your two nephews. I had two nephews that were twins who were there. He goes, except for your two nephews, he goes, we have no Indians in our school. And before I started the presentation, I, I asked the kids, I said, how many of you here? He goes, no, you come from a, a native tribe and have been educated by your families that you are somebody other than white. Or Hispanics, and it says, "If you, it says, can you raise your hand?" And they were surprised that one third, one third of the fifth grade population could claim roots to a specific tribe. And not only that, but several teachers raised their hand, and parent helpers raised their hand. So here's, and so people don't know that we're around them. We try to educate people. For example, there's a little community just down the road, about an hour, and it's called Farfurias, and People think that's just a Spanish name. So I always tell people, do you know what 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 Parfurias means? And he says, well, it's just a, some some Mexican name. He says, no, it's a it's a Lipan Apache word that means heart's delight or a place of refuge or rest. And I give him the history of how that got this name. And there's a there's a street here. Everybody's always wondering. I always wondered. It's Owasa. And we always don't know. Awasa has to be a, a, a native name. Well, what else could it be? You know, and it's Awasa is sandwiched between Sioux Road and Minnesota, and those are native territories. So I, one time I was up, and I go a lot to Chippewa country up in uh, Michigan, and, and I was talking to the linguistic expert, and I asked him, goes out of curiosity, goes, do you guys have a word by the name of Awasa? He says, well, actually, we have two words that are very similar to each other. We do have Awasa, and we have Awaso. And she said, Owasso means a great leader or chief. I said, but Owasso means a faraway place. And so what I concluded once that there was maybe some migrant workers that went up to Chippewa land in in Michigan and Minnesota. He married a person, or maybe a man married a person and brought his Chippewa wife to South Texas and started a little homestead there, a little ranch, and they named that road in front of him Owasso because she was from a faraway place, you know. And these are the stories that I think need to be um, brought up bring to awareness that, that this land was the rich dwelling places of our native communities, whatever tribe they might be. So what we're doing our, we, in our tribe, we're trying our hardest to educate people. A lot of times our fights are not in the courts. They never get to go to court, but we fight them on the, you know, outside of court. And we win by educating people who we are. We take a stand. We take a stand and show them that we're still alive and doing well. When we often talk about Native American history, we'll talk about the Trail of Tears. We'll talk about what happened to the Seminoles and the tragedies, and you've shared some of those. What are some triumphant stories of your people 
that we may not know about, but you'd like to share with us in order for us to share with our family, friends, and others? I think it's important to understand that it, it wasn't just the Cherokees who had their Trail of Tears. Just about every tribe in the United States had a Trail of Tears, especially the tribes in the central part of the United States and the western part of the United States, as they were being removed. And, and, and a lot of them were sent to the Indian land, which we call Oklahoma today, but a lot of them being taken from their homelands and shipped into reservations, especially the Apache people and the people in the southwest were, were the last to be conquered. And because of that, a lot of those stories uh, are still fresh in our minds because they were they were always being discussed among our tribal community. But like like anything else in life, I thought we have to make a choice. We either choose to be defeated or we choose to have the victory. And the Apache tradition, we just say that the the, the white man should say, well, how can you fight somebody who also is always fighting behind the cactus? <laughs> they were always hiding where there was no trees, there had to be cactus, you know. I tell our people and our children and our grandchildren and our youth, we didn't get this far by hiding behind cactus. We've had to take a stand and some of us have to have to die for, this, for the case of freedom. And a lot of people don't realize it, just like, for example, a lot of people don't realize it, uh, that among the native community, we have heroes in our native community. We had one member of our tribe who um, was in charge of all the troops in the Southwest Pacific. If we were to war, this man was it. He's, uh, he was one of our people. And, and and he you know and, and he was in charge of these literally thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women who are here protecting our freedom and and here he was being the, the, he was being uh, what do you call it uh, being being led by one of our members we had another of our tribal members who every time there's a war he would disappear because he was an expert in hand to hand combat and he was uh, always being sent to the Middle East to train our troops to protect themselves in case they were ever attacked and, and they you know how to defend themselves, defend themselves from, from knives and, and things like that. But we have a lot of a lot of personal small victories, you know, because we don't let persecution knock us down. And I try to encourage everybody to stand up and keep fighting, stand up and keep fighting. I say, we just never give up, never give up. We just stand up and keep fighting. And we have a lot of personal victories. When I told people that I was going to sue the United States government for taking our feathers, they all laughed at me. All the Nat- A lot of Native people laughed at me and, and even family members laughed at me because nobody has ever won against the Department of against the United States government or Department of Interior. It was We've had small victories, but never something like this. So people would kind of laugh at me and say, oh yeah, when I when you win, and like, yeah, 10 and a half years later, when I finally won the case, everybody's patting on the back and saying, oh, we were right behind you. We were right there with you. But but that was a victory. <laughs> a great victory. Yeah. That for, I mean, I wish it had been a victory for all our people. Unfortunately, I could only get about 230 of our people in that list, the plaintiff's list, because that's the, what, what came out at the end. And I wish the whole tribe would have been part of this victory. We're fighting on that now. But, but but just the, the, not just that, but I mean that my case is being used in, in places like the pipelines that went to North Dakota. They were using that over the issue of destruction of sacred sites. There's another fight in San Carlos Apache people. They're taking their sacred grounds. They've been their their sacred ceremonial grounds for hundreds of years, and they're going to make it into a big giant copper mine. There uh, that at, at the end will have a hole three miles in diameter and 95 feet deep. And, and and the whole every uh, the whole ceremony ground will be uh, will be gone. And I thank God that right now I think Beckett is involved with that, and I and I and without one and, and other people have used this case. So so even though it was a, like a small little thing, and I really thought nothing about it, and but I was able to see how a lot of people are using that for their own personal defense as American Indians, and but it also tries for some of their sacred rights.
And, you know, and, and, and I'm sure that, you know, we could keep talking about all the little victories, but that's something that's a lot of people. We just keep working, we keep fighting, we keep working, we keep fighting. We never stop until our ticket lasts for us. Where's my, my I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, it just, it sounds like you've had an impact in that case. It had an impact that you never could have imagined when you were only one and a half years old and had that dream, had that vision. Yeah. Pastor Soto, I'd like to just thank you so much because unfortunately, I think we could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately, <laughs> I think our time together has come to an end. It's just yours is an important story. It's a fascinating story, but I think more than that, it's a really important story. So thank you so much for lending your voice to the learning curve today. And I know that our listeners will be very appreciative. I'm glad I could help. So my tweet of the week is from Education Next, November 1st, dismantling Denver. The city was a national model for education reform. Then union-backed candidates took over the school board. I had a chance to study a lot about Denver schools when I was in grad school, and I will watch this with great interest. We're talking a lot about school boards, primarily about critical race theory, about bathrooms, about COVID. But there's a whole lot school boards do. And when a place like Denver is at least under the microscope of not being what it used to be, it's something we should take a look into. And if it could happen in Denver, it can happen in your school system as well. And it's not about whether it's union or not. It's about who you put in office and for what reason. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Gerard. You're never wrong, my friend. Okay, rarely. We'll, we'll, well ask Kim. Ask, ask my wife. She'll talk <laughs> you on that one. <laughs> All right. I've got a friend of yours coming up next week, Gerard. Next week, we are going to be speaking with Jennifer Laszlo Misrahi. She is the president of Respectability, a nonprofit organization advancing opportunities so that people with disabilities can fully participate in all aspects of community. I'm definitely looking forward to that conversation, Gerard. Until then, take care of yourself, and I'm sure we'll have lots to discuss next week with regard to your home state.